in three, two, one. All right, welcome everyone back to the Shopstool podcast. Hope everyone's well. Joey, how are you? Brian, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. Yep. It's good. Brian, Pretty good. Brian's. Yeah, we'll, let, we'll again let people in under the curtain or under the blanket in this case, but it is hosing down with rain and obviously on the tin roof of the workshop. It's pretty loud, so at the minute I am buried under a furniture blanket, creating my own little recording studio. <laughs> uh, Do you know, for, when, I, when I first saw you, I thought, this has got to be something to do with kids. He's hiding from his kids or something <laughs> under a blanket. I thought he was Mate, in a tent, actually. Was like, if what a is furniture blanket worked to get me to hide from them, I'd be under one all the time at the minute. Oh, just sick kids <laughs> all the time. Since yeah, wood right. dust, sick kids. Oh, really? Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, Sometimes. all good. Are you, in, are you and Lani getting it as well? I mean, is it impacting your, Lani's, your work, your Lani's, ability to work? Lani's got it. I've, I've somehow stayed well the whole time. Uh, dodge yeah, right. COVID at Wood Dust and yeah, dodge whatever stinky daycare viruses they've picked up. But um, yeah. it's impacted me in terms of the amount of time that I can actually spend working. And, mm. you know, getting four hours sleep a night isn't really ideal. Yeah. Yeah, um. one of those things. <laughs> but pieces are moving. I've got a few things. I've got that dining table is going to go out this week. and Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, a couple of other things. So, yeah, yeah, still getting a little bit I done. S- I saw some of the pictures on Instagram. It looks really... Because we talked about that, was it last show or the show before, about it being a very standard design? Uh, yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Mm. I think, uh, yeah, there's there's only so many ways you can do a trestle. Like, yeah. um, I've just tried to make some of the details my own and, you know, trying to work out how to make it as strong as possible. So, like, mm. the connection of the post to the horizontal is what gives the trestle table its strength. So you sort yeah. of want that as wide as possible. Yeah. But rather than mm. making it a solid piece, I've made it as, as two, uh, two timber elements and ha- got a gap between them. So, again, just trying to increase the the lightness visually of it while still providing mm. the strength. So yeah, there's a That's few the hardest things with there. that kind of slim line table design. Yeah. That, that connection, which I've typically used like a kind of a sliding dovetail and, and lowered the, the rails down into the leg component. Yeah. But it's still, I don't even think that's probably the best way to do it, but um, it's so hard because you just want more and more. You want, you want like, 300 mil of depth to really connect yeah. the leg to that mm. rail and then but you just can't do it because knees and visual and all the other stuff and yep. um it becomes a bit dicey sometimes yeah it's it's pretty sturdy i was standing on top of it the other day um giving it a wobble and mm. and yeah it's good like tabletops attached with big bolts into threaded inserts and then expansion uh, clips in the middle and yeah it all seems pretty good i think what is apart from the the width of the the post, like the two post elements, I think it's the depth of the cross member that connects between the two is what's stopping it from racking. Right. So I've dialed through that as well, dialed oh. and glued. Mm. So it's it seems to be pretty strong. Yeah, cool. Because of course the worst yeah. thing and it's, what always happens is after what some, you have a dinner party or something like, and oh, we'll just drag the table over here and, and put <laughs> yeah, it next, yeah. and you're like, God, don't drag, don't drag it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's so funny you say that, um, Joey. Sometimes it gets a bit dicey. If you go online, you will see people putting out furniture that you look at it and you think, 
that's probably going to be a bit wonky. The, yeah. you, it, it's standing now, but it's – so where would you – where would you draw the line? Because well, obviously you can make the argument of this is a, a table. It's not meant to be stood on. And of course, if you have kids running around pulling on it, of course it's going to break. So therefore, I'm just going to have one leg going through the tabletop and, and, and call it that. But we all know that if you were to look at it the wrong way, it's going to fall over. So where, where would you, what's your mark of this is strong enough to give to a client? <laughs> well, hmm. we kind of had this conversation with um brian is it um is it yvonne who was the the lady we had on who was your um uh shop oh, assistant? vivian oh, vivian yeah and she was talking to us about these specific piece of furniture that she was commissioned to make designed by someone who i can't remember and she was quite excited about it i believe oh, i know which one. it was the jewelry box for john Those wardle wasn't very it? tall on the little skinny legs yeah, very skinny yeah. legs and i remember talking briefly at, at at the time, like, how do you know it's going to stay? Like, I mean, what's going to happen? Because this thing is probably just going to twist or warp or something. The legs are way too long proportionally, you know? And it's a, and it's an artistic decision, so that's fine. Um, this is, is getting off topic a bit, <laughs> uh, Robin, but we're good at that. Um, but <laughs> I have wanted to bring this up with you guys um, before, and it, make, it seems like a good time, is that the... So that kind of piece that she made went into a designer, got some kind of design award or was entered into some kind of competition as a piece of furniture, I believe. Um, but at what point does that, because it's not really functional, you could probably put some jewelry in that box, but like if you're going to pull the drawer out, the whole thing topples over because it's so top heavy and so tall and spindly and the legs twist like is it furniture or is it a piece of art? And like, mm. it's really interesting. And last year or the year before uh, the um, Maker of the Year awards, was it Maker of the Year? The Australian competition. And I think one of the year. winning designs was like this chair with like strings or oh, something. Yeah, the filament. Across yeah. it. And it's yeah. like, okay, is that art or is that a piece of furniture? Because I'm not sitting on that for more than two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so like, it's, it's a weird, and it's probably maybe a whole different topic, whole another discussion for us to have, but I always wonder, like, at what point does it stop becoming functional furniture and you're really looking at a piece of, like, three-dimensional art that isn't actually practical anymore and it's, like, so uber art, so uber furniture that it's beyond usability. Mm. I, I guess it's threefold. It's, so it's, it's trying to be art furniture, but it's also trying to be craft. So if there was a particular technique or something that went into making it, even if it is, you know, a bit of, like say it's lacking in the practicalities, I can still appreciate it as a piece of furniture design. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like I always say to clients, like if it's a hallway piece or something that can be slightly uh, lighter and skinnier, and I always ask them, have they got kids? Have they got pets? things yeah. like that. Is it going to be climbed on? Um, because I think you can start to sort of blur the lines of practicality a little bit. Like if you look at um, my pinch bench that I do, the original version with the cylinder, the cylinder is connected to the piece with a, a threaded rod. So it's it's really sturdy. Like if you sit right on the corner, you'll feel it start to rock, but it's really sturdy. But then 
the version that I do with the World War II shell as yeah. the leg, it comes down to a point. Right. So that's not designed to be a coffee table. That's meant to be an art piece. It yeah. could be in a hallway or something like that. You can still, you know, hang magazines in it, but it's it's meant to be a piece of art. Mm. Um, so I guess I for me, I think usage comes into it a lot, and I think a dining table. I mean, I don't know what your dinner parties are like, but mine used to have people dancing on tables. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I think every every dining table should be uh, dance proof. Fair enough. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it, it's really a part of your assessment. So when you meet with the client, that's a bunch of questions, which I, I, I guess is it's a it's a good and a bad thing because on from a from the good perspective, you are finding that out and that's influencing your design. Great. From the bad perspective, you are also taking onus of I am certifying it for these scenarios, yeah. which I I guess you you take that on the chin. I, but that's a good way to do it. It's probably my background in architecture and having had an interest in engineering. I think it's better to slightly over-engineer something than under-engineer it. And that requires a whole lot more time and a whole lot more thought. But I still haven't had a piece returned to me that's failed in 11 years. So I take that as proof that my approach is working for me. It might not work for other people, but Mm. I think you should... Incorporate things around load and structure when you're designing it, but also when you're thinking about the types of joinery you're using, the types of glue you're using, expansion. Like it's multifold. It's not just the design of it. I'm going to make skinny legs because it's not going to be climbed on much, or I'm going to make thick legs because it needs to take a pounding. Um, yeah, I think it's. I think it has to be really multidisciplinary between art, engineering, design, all those kind of things. Mm. Mm. Anyway. Talking about racking legs, I've just finished my workbench. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm calling it a workbench. It's not really. It's more of an assembly table. Yeah. It's funny. I, I look back at the conversation that we had a couple months ago where I was talking about building my first one and how I was struggling with it, but I'm, I'm finally there. I've got something to put things on and a little bit of storage to store things in. It's exciting. But <clears throat> I tried building... So uh, the long rails, there's two long rails, and they're like, I think they're about 80 mil wide, a top and a, and a middle one. So it's quite rigid when you push it in, you know, lengthway yeah. orientation. I thought I'd skimp out on the short rail because, <laughs> ah, it'll be fun. <laughs> wow, it makes a difference having that middle rail in right. versus not in because when you push it on the short rail, you can – I actually ended up going back and putting a big plywood panel on it. Yeah, I was going to say, I'll just do an later. infill panel and – Try to stiffen it, just to, just to give it some sheer strength. Yeah, because it's it's massive, and it's 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 quite interesting because that's you figure these things out with your shop furniture, and now going forward into client work, I will I will I will have that in the back of my mind always. Yeah. If there's any any sheer force on this table, it's got to have multiple rails or a, or a, as you said, Joey, a three hundred yeah, rail a, on the top, a big long, a big deep rail or something. Yeah. Yeah, always. That's an interesting point because often you see dining tables with with the, the the legs at the end of the rectangular shaped table will be joined with a lower rail, um, and then there'll be nothing between the and the length of the table, which is great. It can work, or you'll have a table with low rails at the each end, connecting the legs down by the floor, and then maybe a central like a, um, a footrest kind of rail that connects the, the feet down low, which is a good way of bracing the whole design. But when you see sometimes tables that have nothing, it's just the skirt 
like a traditional yeah. table and you, and you start going, well, you know, you put the same two types of table and, and through like a torture test and pretty obvious yeah. to see which one's going to last, but. Yep. Yeah. That's why I actually really design. like pedestal. I like pedestal tables. Um, I think they're super strong when you make them right. And they also allow for really flexible seating configuration. You know, you can squeeze extra, mm. you can squeeze an extra seat onto it and you don't have legs impacting where people are sitting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean, though. You, you've got to, con- like, the weight considerations on big tables like that, where there are no stretchers or lower rails or anything connecting them. Like, I think then you start to have to move to things like torsion tops to try to reduce the weight of it, allow you to put mm. direct fixings in rather than expansion mm. fixings, things like that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Robin, you've got some shiny new tools, which probably aren't so shiny, shiny or new anymore, but... Do you know, <laughs> the first thing I put through it was some... So, as I mentioned, I've just made this workbench. It's out of some old 2 by 4s that I had um, kicking around. And I ran these through my machines, this new, brand new uh, 8-inch jointer, parallelogram uh, tables, uh, spiral head, got it from Timbercon. It's a Sherwood. It's their top of the line jointer. And I was running my boards through and I looked down and I went, oh, shit, what is that? When the boards were sitting on my workshop floor, they've obviously picked up a stone. <laughs> oh, no. And now my shiny new tools have this gouge straight through the thicknesser and on the, the joints. And obviously it doesn't affect the, the performance, but it's just so ugly to look at this, this big gouge. That's a good, that's a good learning yeah. lesson because, I mean, I still do it. Every time I get a load of timber, I dump it on the floor in the workshop, and it, inevitably it picks up small stones, which then go through and smash my blades. So, you know, it's a good mm. lesson, perhaps, not to put your yeah, timber that, that right on the floor. <laughs> that would be the more important thing. Did you damage the blade or just the top? Well, the the jointer presumably it would have hit one of the teeth, yeah, because the scratch was on the table. So, but yeah. the thickness of the scratch was also on the table. So. The thickness should be all right. Um, I haven't noticed it though, so yeah. I haven't noticed any gouges in the, the timber. But again, um, you know, maybe I just haven't noticed it. I've been building a workbench, so it's not like I am. This isn't doesn't have to be pristine. But I guess the beauty with the with the uh, with the spiral head is it's just it'll be a case of changing out a couple of the the, the knives, and that's it. Yep. Yep. So. But yeah, so it's a, they're both three horsepower. It's a 16 inch thicknesser. The, <laughs> getting these in, what a, what mm. an experience that was. So luckily Mark Dana uh, from Dana made, he popped around to help me with the, the jointer, which was a case of picking up these two tables. We sort of made a two by four. Uh, you know, when you think about someone like a, a, a prince, uh, yeah. and he's sitting on top of like a throne <laughs> on people's shoulders. Yeah. We, we built one of those so we could yeah. lift it up, put it on and pull the sticks out because that table, those cast iron tables, 120 kilos in this thin profile piece. They, they, it's such, a, it's such a, a new experience for me picking up weights like that. I've just never had to move that type of thing. And then the thickness uh, was just, it was pre-built straight out of the factory, 250 kilos. Yeah. Get it from the from the, the one the one piece, yeah, fully assembled. 
basically fully assembled, like yeah. things like the handles I had to put on, yeah. but basically fully assembled. So I had to get a, a, an engine lift, an engine hoist get to get it down. Kudos to the delivery driver who dropped it off and, and managed to get it in because uh, that was... What's your, what's your access so, like to your basement? Do you directly off your driveway? Or? Yeah, so yeah. the driveway, it's, a, it's a, um, one of those pink granite driveways. Yeah. So it's, it's dirt. Then there's a bit of a slope. It drops about half a meter over about a, a two meter length. It's like a, okay. a, a dip. So there's a, that slope was, that was a, a bit of a concern. Then there's over a bit of a concrete hump yeah. to get into the workshop. <laughs> you can see, you can see how fun this is. And then the actual workshop, uh, the actual workshop door is it's a, it's an external door, uh, eight twenty door. <laughs> so yeah. luckily, I was able to get the the, the engine hoisted. And this is this is why I say this has been one of the reasons why I haven't gone the table saw route. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't want to then have to get that table saw out once it's assembled. It's, it's got to be able to come out assembled. Um, so, <laughs> oh, man. but uh, it's yeah, it's it's just it's been wild setting up the tools because obviously you get them and you've got to tweak them. I don't know. Do you guys have parallelogram jointer? Have you used it? Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, million times easier than yeah. the, the the dovetail ways. You've got yeah. these eccentric bearings, few tweaks here, and, and it was so nice. My old jointer yeah. was. I think that's what the mine dovetails. Is. And admittedly, it was an old beat-up machine. So I would make adjustments and cross fingers. That was, <laughs> that was the best I could do. Whereas this one, I would make the adjustment and I would see it happening. I'd see it working, which is oh, such, a, such a dream. Then the thickness, uh, the only thing I had to change out of the gate was the, roller, uh, the, the rollers. Oh, yeah, that's right. They were, yeah, yeah, they were leaving imprints in the, in the timber for shallow Massive passes, imprints. Like. Yeah. So I was that after like up. a heavy plane? Because like my my thickness, uh, my, yeah, my thickness will leave the roller imprint if you take like less than half a mil, like yeah. a certain amount That's where it, yeah. it's not enough. But we we always leaving yeah. the imprint after like a, a mil or two mil cut. Yeah, it seemed so. Presumably, the outfeed roller is a little bit less, so the infeed's picking it up, gouging it taking a it's then cutting it and then on the outfeed it's fine so if you take two mil you don't see it but it's only when you do a really light pass Has your outfeed roller got the the spiral kind of teeth on it as well i assume so i haven't actually looked i only looked at the infeed which does you can you can feel it i would have thought usually the outfeed roller is mechanically geared like everything else but smooth so otherwise it would oh maybe it is maybe otherwise that's you'd be leaving yeah. all marks all over it but Okay, yeah, so that makes sense why it, it doesn't do it on the way out. But, yeah, so I've just eased off on the infeed. Uh, but, yeah, so that was pretty much it's, – it's as square as it needs to be yeah. for, for what I'm doing, but I'm sure it'll get tweaked over time. Sure. Uh, yeah, so then got it all plumbed up, and now, yeah, I went from trying to dress joinery or dress timber on my edge sander and, <laughs> and drum sander yeah. and – my dust bag filling up maybe yeah, yeah. a mill or two in a day to I literally got these machines, did my workbench and my, my dust bag was full. I had to empty it. Yep. This is now, this is where you're going to get into the habit of, um, of kind of resawing 
down to near your stock size. You know, if yeah. it's say you buy 40 mil timber and you want it to be 30 mil, like take five, six mil off with a bandsaw or yeah. if you have a table saw and then let it sit for mm-hmm. a day and then do the jointing. Like the difference that five mil passes can make across 10, 15 yeah. boards, like it'll be a bag full. And then you've got to dispose of the bag, whereas with small offcuts and things, you can obviously just burn them or give them away as firewood or whatever. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, those are all set up. The, I, am, I am super busy. It's so cool um, to, to be able to say that again. Not necessarily – I feel like I've got a lot of things in the works. So I'm finishing up – so I finished up this I – t- I talked to you guys about the, the celery top shop. That's yep. my, my new project. I've bought the domain. I've started on the websites. I've started getting some pictures together. I've built the first project or the first product, which is those cookbook stands. They're all set up, ready to go. I've just got to turn them on on the website. So that's ready to start making some money. The YouTube video for it is 80% complete. So that's, again, it's there, but it's not actually generating any income yet. The, the, the tools, and I haven't spoken about this yet, those tools that I got, I got them through TimberCon. It was part of a deal. So I, I've got to make some video or do some video work for TimberCon to essentially recoup that cost. So I've got six videos to do for them. One of them I've, I'm just about to complete today. So again, it's not money coming in, but it's money that, you know, to work that has to be done. So I've got all, I feel like I've got all these projects that are, are sort of ticking along and then once they're complete hopefully then that that money will start coming in because what i go into in this in the the youtube video is essentially i've i'm tapped out of money at the moment i'm yeah i'm just scraping by on the business account so all of these things i'm putting in place to hopefully when they all you know when the the starter pistol fires and they all get going hopefully that that money will start to come back in but um, for the minute, I just feel like I'm just working. I'm working for nothing. It's just for fun. Oh, well, that sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I was chatting to Adam Markowitz about it the other day, and he said uh, there was a survey done by the Victorian Woodworkers Association where they went around different businesses asking them what their, str- what their strong points are, what they're struggling with, and everybody's busy and nobody's making money. Yeah. And they're mm. trying to get to the bottom of why. And I was thinking... It's probably down to the fact that we're all wanting to make different things all the time. Yeah. What do you mean? Trying to do custom pieces, the amount of extra time, like your workshop hours are fairly fixed, like especially if you've got kids, a family or whatever, or you can't work evenings in your workshop, like due to noise. You've got a set number of hours and the second you take on custom work, that's not a set number of hours anymore. You've got so much time doing prototyping, doing all that kind of stuff. Like maybe we all should focus more on a range of products as opposed to taking on bespoke work or, and then let clients know that if you want bespoke work, it's not two times more, it's four times more. I was just going to say, it's like you've got to triple or quadruple your price. I'm right in that it's one. It's one thing making like, a set of built-in plywood shelves or MDF shelves or something like that. But if it's making a dining table to a client's design that you don't know, like, again, going back to that idea of structure and, you know, you have to test these things and the onus is on you. So we, as furniture makers, I think 
we take pride in that, which means that we spend a shitload of time on it. Yeah, I'm just about to get on to, well, I say just about to. I need to get on to building a outdoor dining table, which is 2.7 by 1.2. It's a good mm-hmm. size table. Big monster, yeah. Mm. And um, I priced this up a couple months ago. And now the timber for it, the ladies said, can you just give me two months to sort my finances and then we'll go for it. So she came back to me and said, right, let's go. Here's some money. Fine. Now the timber for it has just not doubled, but the cost of the materials has just gone through the roof. Um, mainly since you first spoke to her, since I quoted the, the job, and yeah, right. the problem isn't that the timber itself has gone up. It's that the timber, the specific pieces of timber I was going to use have sold out the specific lengths. And now I've got to get shorter pieces and get way more of them to make up the pieces I need and have more waste. And so the job's just mm. one of those ones where I was looking forward to it. And now I'm like, fuck, stress, I just need to get stress, it stress. done yeah. because the money's just being smashed by the cost of the the materials itself and it's just so you absorb the difference i can't charge you more just because the the timber stock is different from when i first quoted it because like i say the timber itself has not gone up the availability of that specific timber that would have been ideal has now gone so yeah so it's increased the amount of labor that you have to do on it but the material cost labor and materials yeah so I went from buying okay. four lengths of timber to seven. Okay. And so you're like, okay. So there's added waste. and Added waste is mainly what it is because yeah. of the lengths are shitty because it's 2.7 long, this table, and so everything's either yeah. 2.4 or in this case I, I'm having to buy four-meter lengths and I yeah. can't get, you know, my off-cut from a 2.7 is horrendous. Give you the, yeah. <laughs> and so you're like, okay. How long... How long did you say it was between when she... Uh, two months. You gave her the quotes in. Yeah. So, so do you not have an expiration on your, your quote? Um, it's normally 28 days or a month. You know, I haven't done... I haven't actually done... An, written out an official quote form for so long. I would usually do 90 as my... Thing, but days. again, that's in, yeah. that's in the past. Like, mm. Whereas now Timber does fluctuate in price in yeah. three months. Um, Definitely for kitchens. Gonna, for the plywood? So, yeah. If I'm doing cabinetry, I'm constantly, I'm like, this price is for this week because yeah. all the different components wow. of cabinetry can change. Like even just the cost of paint goes up and down and timber and what's available. Like sometimes if I just want like plywood material to build carcasses for cabinets it's just not available it's just not in the country and and i say well do you want to wait three months for it to come in on the boat or do you want to use a different product okay different Mm -hmm. product double the price i was like oh so you can't you've got to keep having the conversations i've not really come across that too much with actual solid timber furniture it tends to be over loud enough in this case it's just bit me in the butt a bit and i'm just going to take it on and I guess this is going to play into our conversation that we've been having offline from the show about about timber and what's happening in in Australia at the minute. I said we didn't want to dwell too much on it today because we are going to cover it in a in a special episode. Mm. But yeah, I'm still trying to get my head around 
not only from a business perspective, but from a moral perspective and a sustainability thing, because these are important things to me. Exactly yeah. why a native logging ban has come in the way it has done and the, what are going to be the knock-on effects. Like, I don't yeah. think... Like, it's not going to stop the supply of timber for things like furniture making, but the price is going to go through the roof. It's going to... It's definitely going to affect the building trade more than us. Hmm. Um, why do you say? Why do you say it won't affect the furniture industry? And I'm only. It will. It will affect us from a cost perspective. But I think that there is enough agroforestry at the minute with mature trees that farmers will harvest that you can get decent quality lengths of hardwood timber. Um, but yeah, the cost is going to go up. It's just from a supply demand perspective because so like you say we've been talking backwards and forwards behind the scenes fairly uh, a a bit about this and trying to work out how we're going to put it into one kind of succinct podcast that hopefully gives both sides of the story and as much information accurately as we can so for now both sides of the story thing is so important because i don't feel as though anybody is covering it like the whole the media here are purely taking the line from government and from and and then they're going and interviewing loggers who have been put out of work yeah like they're not actually examining why the sustainability is like like why are we taking this advice and what what exactly is the advice other than there's sugar gliders and you know we got to protect the forest i feel like it's gonna be an interesting one it's what what i'm quite quite interested in and i don't know that it's completely comparable but given the situation here at nz where mm-hmm. the native, effective native logging ban has been since 1989, I think it was, I looked into, or even maybe yeah. earlier, actually. Um, we're like decades ahead of what Australia is proposing to do now. Yeah. And I feel like you guys could look over the ditch and see what the future could be, yeah. which is not great. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you, yeah. I can't get... We've spoken about the pine plantations before as well in New Zealand and, like, lack yeah. of biodiversity and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, sorry, you can't get... Because I can't get natives, native. like you were saying yeah. just before. Oh, I think there's going to be enough for now, which is correct. But yeah. if, if the government goes on, on the angle, which we feel like they're proposing, um, you probably won't be able to get them or... Like, well, probably, probably the, the difference—the difference between Australia and New Zealand timbers—is the speed at which they grow. So, like yes. a eucalypt, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be corrected by timber experts, but but like like a black bot or something like that will grow to a harvestable uh, level of growth in like 30 years. Yes. Whereas a rimu or cowrie or something like that it just doesn't do that. Uh, well, um, I mean, this is massive to the conversation. Is that the, there's a huge nuance and. You, lay people can't have the time or whatever to grasp what we're talking about. Uh, like a totra, for example, is a eight to nine hundred year old tree. Yeah, um, at, at its like peak size. Yeah, there's no way you can do make a plantation of it, and in ha- and, and three generations still aren't going to be able to chop that tree down. Yep. So there's no money, um, no, no monetary um, incentive to want to go down that road unless it's purely conservation. But then you are taking land from presumably 
someone's got to donate that land to be planted out and never be touched for a century or more. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you're relying on philanthropy. Yeah. And there's a lot yeah. of it. Uh, there's a lot of philanthropy that I've been reading about farmers converting and buying up massive sections of land and converting it into anything but pine. Mm, um, I've heard about this as well. And the problem here now is that there's this whole argument that exotic trees aren't going to count as part of the ETS, which is the emissions trading scheme, which is the whole carbon credits thing. And they're talking when you're about, saying exotics, you're meaning like radiata pine, right? Yeah, anything that's yeah. not essentially native. New Zealand native timbers. So yeah. pine. Oh, no, pine has an exemption, sorry. Because it's fast growing and you can get the the yield, yeah, and yeah. You, it it does make sense because pine from from a production point of view makes sense because it's very fast growing and you can pulp it and you can make framing timber out of it and it is really regener re, uh, renews quite quickly. That's mm-hmm. not to say it's good for that particular part of the environment. It's a good business case for what the government's trying to push. But if you want to. Uh, plant slightly longer to grow trees but have a better hardwood and a better yield like better girth etc straighter straighter logs um from what it sounds like those trees aren't going to be um accepted as part of the, the carbon credit system and so there's no incentive to grow them mm. uh, it's definitely it's such a nuanced conversation like so one simple post on instagram and i think i got more comments on that post than I have done in 11 years of running a fucking Instagram account. I had every perspective. I had people calling me a tree murderer. I had people saying, you know, there was the whole conspiracy theorist thing about the Great Reset. Everything occurred in that feed. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm literally just saying, what is like, what, what, what is the advice that has led yeah. to this? Like, and, yeah. and what are we going to do? What's the plan? Like, it doesn't feel as though there is a plan here. And that's the most disheartening thing about it to me. It's like there was a six-year hiatus where they were going to gradually feed it out. And even six years, like if you're looking at trees that take 25 to 30 years to come to maturity, six years is not enough. But to go, okay, we're going to do six years and then six months later go, oh, no, it's actually going to happen next year. Yeah, It just seems madness to me. Was that six years to do with... with improving on the research and, 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 and potentially improving the way they're going to roll it out? Or is that just a, a, I think it a was hold on to, it? I think it was to try to establish plantations at least and Im- right, improve okay. on agroforestry um, and also retrain a lot of the people that have worked in forestry and logging to then work in tourism industries. But the, there's so much of the forest here that is going to be inaccessible for tourists and you don't want tourists in. Um, and you look at how much of the that forest was actually inaccessible for logging anyway. Like, mm. I don't know. We're gonna, like I said, we're gonna have to try to yeah. find. Like, I've obviously got a few people that have contacted me um, that, from the timber industry who are willing to present their perspective. But I want to hear from an environmentalist. I want to hear from a real professional on, yeah, like what the benefit to the forest is. Um. Like beyond the obvious things. Like for me, I always, like the simple thing for my architecture training was source local materials, reduce your carbon footprint that way and also carbon sequestering. So the fact that trees sequester carbon a lot faster in their first 15 to 20 years, their big growth period. So if you can cut that down, 
make it into something useful, housing, furniture that's going to last a long time and not release that carbon through a bushfire or through rotting or something like that. I thought that was the argument, but it seems to have gone out the window. Um, well, what you said there with the 15 to 20 years is why they're pushing for the pine plantations because that's about when you can yeah. start felling them. Whereas yeah. if you're taking something like beech or ash, oaks, they do the same CO2 sequestering for the same 15 to 20 years. And after that, when they're still maturing, they could still mature for another 30 years, uh, but they're not sequestering anything like that yeah. amount of uh, carbon and so there's an argument to say well let, why why plant them in the first place let's just monocrop the whole lot yeah which is an awful um predicament for yeah wildlife yeah there's nothing and, and, that's pine- the th- and that's the thing that we're looking to protect by these bands <laughs> so it's like you should probably also clarify here we're not necessarily well, i mean uh, brian i you've made it quite clear that you have a uh, a stance that you believe is right, but we are also trying to. I still want to be. I still want to be educated on and it make Robin. it an educated yeah. decision. Yeah. yeah. So if the if you know the current status quo has merits, we we want to hear them. Yeah. Just so we can make a more informed decision. We're not trying to demonize one side yet. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. And hundred percent. If you gave me if you gave me the choice of, I, I want to know where my timber comes from. That's why yeah. I go to certain yards because I know that they can trace. If you gave me timber that I could actually afford that came from a certain farm and I know that he's felling one of those trees in that day and that tree is mine, all that kind of stuff, I'm totally fine with it. But I want to know the the wider knock-on effects of that will suit me, but the building industry is now going to rely on hardwood timber coming from overseas. Mm. Like it's not just like pine does not just cut it. Like, you know, in New Zealand you use, what, Murbo for your decking and things like that? Yeah, yeah. So brilliant. So we're just going to decimate Indonesia, Malaysia, Papua yeah. New Guinea instead Fiji. of trying to manage yeah. the problem, Fiji, instead of trying to manage the problem on our own shores. And I find it incredibly neglectful and just a bit sad that, that people think that this is a green approach, but they're not looking at the larger picture of the, the whole thing. The big picture. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, so I like I said, I don't think it's, it's not going to put furniture makers out of business necessarily. Yeah. But the wider knock-on effects of you know trying to have um, decent, sustainable practices like I've for I mean how many years ago did I start Tree Maker? Twenty eighteen, I think. Yep. So I plant one percent of my of my revenue goes towards planting trees. So I will have planted for every one tree I've used, I would guess somewhere between thirty and forty trees. Yeah. Something like that. So there's schemes like that and. You know, if the government think that they can manage schemes like that, put that tax on on businesses, and we can pass it on to our clients. That's actually not a bad idea to have a scheme where, if you're a business who is consuming timber goods, yeah, um, surely just give back a little bit, and you know, for however many thousands of dollars worth of timber products, you you plant five trees. Yeah, and that's like again, a mandatory the, you, thing. Like, Fine. When we were talking about carbon credits and things like that, you know, and you're basically having to buy poor ethical practices or something like yeah. that, you're paying cash. It's who is managing that cash and how are they managing it? It's the transparency. Well, I had the real. What, I agree with you. Um, sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. no. I had a real hard time with the um, 
carbon credits, I want someone to explain to me how it actually works. Because uh, in my layman's view of it, you've got, let's say, a dirty old factory in the Northern Territory is producing whatever they do and producing as much carbon as they like. And you've got some nice forests down in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. And the dirty factory buys as many credits as he wants to keep producing as much carbon as he likes without changing any business practices. Yeah, that's yep. it. And where it, where it gets really sick is you can now go onto the ASX and buy shares in those carbon credits, <laughs> yeah. which will become a very lucrative industry in 20, 30 years because there's a finite amount of those credits. So they will just increase in value. So it's now not only... Not only are we are we doing what you're talking about, Joey, where we are we're we're not actually improving businesses. We're now turning this entire thing into a into an investment scenario. Yeah. Where again, money is the is the bottom line. Not how do we improve yeah. the environment. It, it's about making a profit. So in my little example just there, where you've got factory on one side of the continent and forest on the other, I'd like someone to explain if it's even possible. Um, in my layman's mind, I think, well, if you've got a dirty old factory, isn't it better to have the forest right next to the dirty old factory and it might catch mm-hmm. some of the carbon that it's producing? If if they're hundreds of thousands of kilometres apart, are we actually even doing anything? Is it just a purely mm. numbers it's game? It's just a tokenistic thing because yeah, is it just ultimately, sure? ultimately yeah. China and India, the developing world, is going to produce... Absolutely. infinitely more carbon and mm-hmm. not have the funds or the interests to deal with it at the minute. Yeah. So yeah, that, it that, just, it's a massive thing. Like I, I feel like we, the wool's being pulled over our eyes to a certain extent or just not explained at all. Yeah. So if anybody knows somebody that works in just about to say, forest, hmm. forestry science or a university or anything like that, they can come on and talk to us. We'd love to talk to them. And like I said, we want to be educated on it. Like, so I think even if it's we're, the we're all flexible, hundred percent, hundred percent. We don't want it to be an echo chamber. So, like I said, we've got people from the timber industry uh, that are willing to talk to us, but we want to have both sides of the story. Mm. So, get in touch with us on Instagram. Hit the Shopstool Podcast Instagram and send me a message if you can present the sustainability, environmental side of things of 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 why this ban was necessarily and and how it's going to be implemented. Mm. or not necessarily how it's going to be implemented but what's the next step to providing sustainable harvesting of timber in this country mm. Yeah, either that or you know I'd love to see all the politicians that have made the decision you know what are they going to do when they need a new deck <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need to like, get one of the MPs on the podcast you reckon we can make that I'd happen say, I'd say there is sweet fuck all chance of that happening <laughs> would be my guess but again like this shows you like these are decisions that are long-term things for the future, for our kids and grandkids' future. But when you have political terms that you know globally last between three, four years, mm. or if you're Russia, twenty years, but <laughs> yeah. they're they're short terms. So you need to get the small wins in, and then let future generations try to work out how that policy is implemented. Whereas this needs to be it. Like non-partisan, it has to be across all parties, and it has to be presented with real, genuine scientific evidence of of you know 
And even if, if it's a ban for a year, you know, do a test ban and see what happens to these areas. Do they regenerate? Are, are there alternative sources of timber that we can find? What happens to the price of it from an economic perspective? Because there's going to be so many builders that are shitting themselves at the minute. Mm. People that quoted on jobs, you know, six yeah. months ago thinking... <laughs> thinking sure. that, you know, oh, we're, we're guaranteed native timber. Of course, it's going to gradually creep up in price like everything in a cost of living crisis. But they're quoting on jobs saying we can get this timber, whereas in eight, 18 months, two years time, maybe they can't get the quantity of timber that they need. Mm. So yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. I think we really should do a proper deep dive into it. Like, yeah. Rather than trying to do a, a 40 minute episode, we want to be covering all aspects of this and like a, I don't know I mean like a mini documentary or something it like that it might be a be three really... or four parter or something okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but we wanted to showcase everything yep alright so board. now that we've now that we've talked about that thing that we're not going to talk about for <laughs> yeah fuck that was only what 20 minutes talking about the thing that we weren't going to talk about one thing I do want to touch on before we wrap up um and i've been meaning to talk about this for uh a number of episodes but because of the whole wood dust thing and and, and interviewing yeah. guests it's it's been hard to get to it but we are seeing a, a growing number of people donating to the show and okay. I'm, I'm not going to mention names because uh, i mean maybe these people want to be mentioned maybe they don't i don't know so i'm just going to err on the side of caution but we do see you all donating to the show it, obviously it's a massive thank you um, some of that money went into our our wood dust event that helped to make that 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 happen so we are using that money back into the show we are putting it back into the show and i just wanted to take a second to say thank you to everyone who donates either a single donation we've got a few repeats as well so yeah just a very big thank you we really do appreciate um all that that money coming in Absolutely, that's very cool of you. If you feel like you want to part with your hard-earned cash, so I can dribble on for forty-five minutes, <laughs> <laughs> supporting Joey's client, angry client stories. But it is a cool thing, and we said, you know, we didn't want, like we don't want a Patreon for this for this podcast. We don't no. want to put people under financial pressure. We don't want anything behind a paywall. But you know, it's just that thing. If you want to donate to us the cost of a coffee or the cost of a pint or something like that. It's all, it's really appreciated because it is we do put a lot of work into making the show happen and mm. getting the guests that we get on. Um, and as much as we love it, you know, sometimes it is it's hard work. Like especially at the minute we're recording during our working day. Yeah, um, mm. and so yeah, I believe we've got an, another international guest coming up, and I think I'm going to have to be in here recording at a ridiculous time. So that's yeah. going to be fun. <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah. uh yeah two weeks from now we are going to have a a famous face that's um yes, a familiar yeah. face too cool so yes the donate the donation link is in the instagram account if you click on the links the link tree will take you to the uh donation link it's mm. there no pressure but it's there yeah cool right guys that was okay a, guys a good one yeah and just just to re just to reiterate what brian said if you know anyone who you think would be interested in this conversation or have some value, please let us know because we do really want to get some some people involved. But yep. otherwise, I'll let you guys get back to your day. And, Cheers. Uh, 
we will talk again in two weeks. Okay. Very good. Catch you guys okay. soon. See you. See you guys. Bye. Bye.